Hey, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. This week's episode features a professor I myself had while attending American University. AU School of Communication professor Joseph Campbell explores 1990s America. He examines the political climate, foreign policy, and cultural and social events that defined the era. Class starts in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good morning, folks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our semester's final class of the American 1990s. It's good to see you all this morning. Today, we are going to take up the contested zeitgeist of the 1990s. And we'll examine and discuss several ways in which we can define the decade. A decade that saw the rise of the popular internet, that saw the first ever impeachment of an elected US president, that saw spasms of deadly terror on American soil. But first, before we really get going, let me go over a few terms that will figure in our assessment this morning. And those terms include zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. This is borrowed from German and refers to the defining or animating spirit of a period of time. The zeitgeist of the 90s in America is contested. And we'll seek to define that zeitgeist today. The term IPO also will figure in our discussions. IPO, for our purposes, refers to the initial public offering of shares of Netscape Communications in 1995. Netscape was a California startup that made and marketed a breakthrough web browser in the mid-90s. And its highly successful IPO, its initial public offering of shares in August of 1995, had the effect of signaling to the world at large that there was money to be made on the internet. The IPO of Netscape also illuminated the web for millions of people who were then just becoming acquainted with the online world. We'll refer as well to the double murder case brought against former football star O.J. Simpson in what at the time, in the mid-90s, was called the trial of the century. We'll also mention the case of the Unabomber, this lone wolf terrorist, a Harvard graduate, who sent deadly package bombs to his targets periodically from 1978 to 1995. And we'll refer to federal crime legislation sponsored and pushed by then-Senator Joe Biden, and beca- which became law in 1994 during the presidency of Bill Clinton. And this crime legislation has been criticized since then for disproportionately targeting minorities. We'll make reference as well to the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 when 800,000 people were slaughtered in a period of 100 days in a gruesome, ethnic-driven murder spree that Western nations did nothing to stop. We'll also mention the Y2K phenomenon, the Y2K fears, which were that at the end of the decade, at the end of 1999, as the calendar switched to the year 2000, the computers would have trouble recognizing the advent of the new millennium and would think that it was the year 1900 instead. And if that happened, the fear was that everything computer-based would go haywire. The Y2K fear. So let's consider the zeitgeist, the elusive zeitgeist of the 90s, and take a look at some of the descriptions that we'll go over later today. 
are the 90s best identified as the internet decade? Is it the decade of spectacle? The terrorism decade? The Clinton-dominated decade? Was it the Seinfeld decade? Were the 90s the Seinfeld decade? Or were they the clueless decade? Or were they the best decade ever? Or was there something else? Is the zeitgeist of the 1990s defined by some other term or characterization? And again, the zeitgeist is the defining spirit of the time, of the 90s for our purposes. So let's take a look. And let me say at the outset that this presentation is drawn in part from the content of my 2015 book about the year 1995, published by University of California Press. The book describes major events that year and how those events and developments resonate and reverberate in American life. And 1995, notably, was the year in which the Internet went from a vague and distant curiosity to a phenomenon that would change and alter the way people work, shop, learn, communicate, and interact. So was it, to start with, was it the Internet decade? Is that the proper way to define and characterize the zeitgeist of the 1990s? What do you say? Any thoughts? The 1990s as the Internet decade. Will, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely was the birth of the Internet, but I think as we see how much we use the Internet nowadays, I would say that we're closer to the Internet decade than the 90s were. Um, now, you mean, is, is more likely the Internet time than yeah. 20-some years or 30 years ago? Okay. Okay. Michael. Yeah, I kind of agree. Um, interesting to be getting there. But the thing that we associate with the internet now, which is Google, things like that, I think it just began in like the late 90s. I think the early 2000s, from 2000 to 2010, is really that time where you being incorporated into like every facet of life. Before then, it was just like it's there, you can use it, and then you can catch on in 2010. So I don't think you can be defined as it. Do you think it may have been too primitive back in the 90s? at least compared to the internet, the online world we know today. Maybe, I don't know how many people have like home computers at the time. I think that's probably growing over time. Good. Any other thoughts about the 90s as the internet decade? Okay, let's take a look at some of the arguments for the notion. And it's undeniable that there were real breakthroughs in the 90s in terms of making the online world accessible. And I'm thinking here of the emergence of popular web browsers, Netscape's Navigator and Microsoft's Internet Explorer for two were two ways in which people began to access the online world. They didn't need to code. They didn't need to have anything but an Internet connection, a computer, and web browsing software. And it's important and impressive, really, to keep in mind how some of the prominent entities of the online world that we know today trace their roots to the 1990s. Amazon.com got going, started selling books online in July of 1995 and became this behemoth that it is today. But it's interesting how almost no one noticed when Amazon opened for business online in 1995, selling books a very modest start to this entity that became huge within the 20, 30-year period. Craigslist traces its origins to the mid-1990s, attracting what newspapers used to refer to as classified advertising and relied on for a lot of their advertising revenues. Craigslist became a dominant force, began in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and has extended, of course, across the country. Google got started. Google was launched in 1998. 
So you can see that these are three important entities important to us today that have their roots in the 1990s. And the IPO that Netscape Communications launched in August of 1995 had the effect of illuminating the web for the world and also signaling that there was money to be made online. There was money to be made online. And of course, the online world in the 90s was primitive. There's no doubt about it. You needed to access the web through a dial-up connection, a funky dial-up connection. But this clearly was the launch pad, the launch pad of the internet, the popular internet. Let's take some arguments against it, against this notion that the 90s were the internet decade. It was a primitive online world back in the time. And really only vaguely does the online world of the 90s resemble what we know as the internet today. It's only vaguely familiar. Portability and social media, which are of course common features of the contemporary online world, were best, at best, vaguely anticipated in the 1990s. And that was the time when the killer app of the internet was email. Casualties were many among the prominent startups among the prominent entities of the 90s. Netscape, lost to Microsoft, was crushed by Microsoft in what were called the browser wars of the late 1990s when Microsoft mustered all its resources and trained them on this upstart, Netscape Communications, and effectively crushed it. This got Microsoft into some, micro, into some antitrust trouble that it successfully dodged in the early 2000s. But nonetheless, there were some controversial measures that Microsoft took to crush Netscape, which eventually was acquired by America Online and then proceeded to be disappeared by AOL. AltaVista used to be the go-to web search engine in the 90s. But by the early 2000s, it was gone, mostly forgotten, superseded by Google. And AltaVista, if it's remembered today, it's remembered as a nostalgic artifact of the 1990s. So too is Prodigy, which was a popular dial-up information service, kind of like the internet on training wheels, if you will. Prodigy was a popular way to get online in the 90s, didn't make much money, and really did not survive the decade. So the point here is that some of the online entities that began and started up in the 90s and were prominent during the decade didn't survive very long. So let's move on to another possible characterization, definition of the 90s. The 90s as a decade of spectacle. And maybe that's the defining zeitgeist of the decade. And think about some of the cases of the 1990s. The O.J. Simpson trial of 1995. The case began in 1994 and unspooled throughout most of the year of 1995. And it was an obsession. It was an obsession for the American population, for many parts of the American population in 1995. O.J. was a very popular former football star, pitch man, and movie actor who was accused of fatally stabbing his wife and her friend outside her condominium in Los Angeles in 1994. The trial was televised, and it gripped America. It was, as I say, an obsession as it continued over most of the year, 1995. And the trial, which ended in O.J. Simpson's acquittal on both counts, on both murder counts, left us with a number of aphorisms that remain popular, if you will. And perhaps the most prominent, perhaps the decade's most important quotation, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. A line used in the closing arguments by Johnny Cochran, who was O.J.'s lead defense lawyer, and it was a reference to the witness or to the um, 
witness gloves that were used by supposedly by the killer of these two people. And during the trial, the prosecution had O.J. try on the gloves and they couldn't and they didn't fit. Johnny Cochran remembered that episode and invoked it in his closing arguments. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Perhaps the best known single line of the 1990s. Another spectacle of the 90s, clearly, was that of the impeachment and trial of Bill Clinton in 1998 and 1999. Clinton was the first U.S. president, elected president, ever to be impeached and put on trial. He was acquitted at trial before the U.S. Senate, but the spectacle was unprecedented. He faced charges of obstruction of justice, of perjury, stemming from his intermittent affair with a former intern, 27 years his junior. He was acquitted, as I say, but the former intern, Monica Lewinsky, was shamed and shunned. And only in recent years has emerged from her, from the shadows. The case had the effect of deepening partisan divides, partisan bitterness in the country. Those divides, those cleavages, have become only more pronounced in the years since the 1990s. So this this partisan rancor, in some respects, can be traced to the Clinton spectacle, the spectacle of impeachment and trial of a sitting U.S. president. There are more spectacles of the 90s, too. Cases of terrorism, including the Oklahoma City bombing in April of 1995. That was an essentially a lone wolf terrorist attack that killed 168 people, most of them in the Target building, the federal office building in Oklahoma City. Among the victims, the fatal victims, were 19 children, 15 of whom were in the federal building at a daycare center. This remains, to this day, the deadliest act of domestic terror in U.S. history. The attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City was preceded by exactly two years by the fiery assault undertaken by federal agents on the compound of the Branch Davidian sect near Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were suspected of harboring and and amassing a store of illegal weapons. Federal authorities failed in several attempts to try to get them to surrender those weapons. And this led ultimately in April of 1993 to this fiery assault on the compound in which more than 75 people were killed. The Gulf War of 1990-91 was also a spectacle in some respects. This was a U.S.-led military action to expel Iraqi forces that had invaded and occupied neighboring Kuwait in August of 1990. The U.S.-led coalition in early 1991 expelled the Iraqi forces from their occupation of Kuwait. The war featured video of showing precision bombing runs and attacks, precision airstrikes, by U.S. aircraft on targets in Iraq and in Kuwait. And even more of a spectacle related to the Gulf War was the victory parade in Washington, D.C. in June of 1991, which featured tanks in the streets of Washington, D.C. The decade of spectacle. So why wasn't it, the decade of spectacle. Well, no decade is without its spectacles. And the terrorist attacks of 9-11 really cement that argument. They eclipsed any 90s act of terrorism in lethality, in their awful theatricality. Nearly 3,000 people were killed that day, September 11th, 2001, in the coordinated attacks on the Twin Towers in New York City, and on the Pentagon. 
the year 2000 brought an unmatched political spectacle in the United States. There was a disputed outcome of the race between George Bush and Vice President Al Gore. This dispute centered around the contested outcome in Florida, where officially Bush was 537 votes ahead of Gore. Whoever won Florida wins the election, wins the Electoral College, and is sworn in as president. This dispute went on for more than a month, the spectacle of an unsettled presidential election, an unresolved presidential election, wasn't decided until almost mid-December 2000 when the Supreme Court essentially decided the outcome in a five-to-four vote. And the spectacle of impeachment, of course, was a 90s phenomenon, but it was even more of a phenomenon in the 2000s Donald Trump was impeached twice by the House of Representatives, twice tried and twice acquitted. So if impeachment is a spectacle, then this one, if you will, trumps Clinton's. So was this the terrorism decade? Was this the decade of terrorism? Let's have a look. It is striking. It really is striking how often and dramatically terrorism, acts of terrorism, intruded on the 1990s and doing so in diverse and deadly ways. The World Trade Center bombing of 1993, a truck bombing that sought to topple the North Tower into the South Tower and collapse the World Trade Center that didn't happen, but six people were killed in this attack in 1993, in February 1993. It was a precursor. Although we didn't know it at the time, it was a precursor to 9-11, when terrorists did target the Twin Towers and brought them down. The Oklahoma City truck bombing of 1995 was another moment in terrorism in the United States. In fact, it was the deadliest, it remains the deadliest act of domestic terror in American history. 168 people were killed there. The Atlanta Olympics pipe bomb attack in 1996 was another case of terrorism intruding on the 90s. And in this instance, it brought, it led to the false accusation against the person who discovered the bomb and tried to clear the area at Centennial Park in Atlanta, clear the area of spectators early in the morning in 1996, July 1996. That security guard, Richard Jewell, later was falsely accused by the FBI and the local newspaper in Atlanta as being the suspect for having set, planted the bomb. It was a false accusation, but Jewell had to live with this for quite a while. And the Columbine High School shootings, the massacre at Columbine in April of 1999, the shootings and attempted bombings represents another moment of domestic terrorism in the 90s. And of course, there was the Unabomber, the Unabomber. This recluse who lived in a cabin, a crude cabin in in Montana, who periodically would make and send package bombs to his victims, to his targets. He began this intermittent spree in 1978 and continued until 1995. Total of three people were killed during these intermittent bombings. And he continued until he sent to the New York Times and the Washington Post his so-called manifesto, and told the newspapers that he would continue to bomb people unless they published his manifesto. After considerable debate, the Times and the Post agreed to split the costs, publication costs, on publicizing and, and publishing the Unabomber's manifesto. 
That publication was very controversial at the time in 1995, but it led to the Unabomber's arrest. His brother, his sister-in-law recognized some of the writings in this manifesto and thought it very much resembled Ted Kaczynski's. They eventually, the brother and mother and sister-in-law, eventually alerted authorities who arrested Kaczynski at his cabin in 1996. So what are some of the arguments against the notion that the 90s can be described as the terrorism decade? The 90s clearly set in motion or accelerated a national psychology of fear about terrorism and the prospects of, of a terrorist attack. But the attacks, the ones that we've described, tended to be infrequent. They were not commonplace in the 90s by any means. And the vulnerabilities of the United States in the 90s were not very well recognized, even after Osama bin Laden, the head of the al-Qaeda terrorist group, declared war in the United States in 1996. Even then, those threats were not taken terribly seriously. The Twin Towers were attacked in 2001 to a tremendous loss of life. So, what do you guys think? Is the terrorism decade an appropriate way to characterize the 90s, or is it perhaps too narrow, too constrained? An important element of the 90s, for sure, but maybe not defining. Ava. I think similarly to what uh, people previously said about the internet decade or defining the decade as the internet decade, um, it's kind of premature to state that here um, as we've seen an increase in terror attacks and mass shootings and other you know, events of terror um, in the last two decades rather than in the 90s. So I think that while yes, this was like the introduction to uh, a few decades of terror, I wouldn't say that this is like the defining feature of the decade. If it were the sort of planting the seeds, if you will, for, for the decades to follow in terms of terrorist attacks or attempted terrorist attacks, wouldn't that be enough to characterize it as a terrorism decade? I disagree. I think that there's definitely other terms that would be better used to describe this decade. Um, and I think that looking at like the, the amount of terrorist attacks in like the 2000s and the 2010s and like probably what we'll see in the next decade, like I think that it's incomparable. And while, yes, it did plant seeds, I don't think that, as you said, like they were very far and few and far and in between. So I think that um, it's just not necessarily, it's premature. Okay. All right. Other thoughts about the 90s as the terrorism decade? I would agree. I feel like it's maybe too narrow to describe an entire decade as just the terrorism decade, especially the 90s itself. Um, like with the internet decade, I think that it, it, when it leads into maybe decades, it could be described as an internet decade or a terrorism decade. I don't know that you can describe then the 90s as that if it's like the lead up to those. Um, I think, again, just the way that it, it may have established this national psychology of fear, and I would definitely agree with that. But I think the fact that they weren't as commonplace, like we've seen mass shootings happen so frequently that it's almost like they are instantly forgotten in our minds because they're so um, frequent. So I just think because of that, I don't know that terrorism is like the way that I would describe the 1990s, even though it could be considered like a feeder into future decades of terror. But wouldn't the establishment or the, the origins of a national psychology of fear be enough, be sufficient to say, yeah, because of that, the 90s really were the decade of terrorism? Like feeding into that, it's establishing that doesn't necessarily mean that it's what defines that entire decade. I think it's things happened in the 90s that allowed that psychology of fear to develop, but I don't, I wouldn't say that that is what describes the entire 1990s, even if that is what kind of contributed to future perspectives surrounding terror and fear in the United States. All right, fair enough. Natasha? Um, I think we have discussed 
too much about the nostalgia and a lot of the positive things that people remember about the 90s, as well as calling it repeatedly the clueless decade, which I know we'll get to, to describe it as the terrorism decade. I feel like that is a too negative a term. Um, and when we're characterizing the decade, you do have to consider how people remember it. And I don't think that if you ask most people, that is what they would remember from the 90s. Maybe. Oklahoma City. Folks there say that's when their you know, future began, essentially. Or the, the 90s never really ended for them because of the, of the terrorist attack there. The Unabomber is remembered perhaps vaguely nowadays, but you know, this lone wolf terrorism is something that we kind of still live with. And the Atlanta bombing, the Atlanta Olympics bombing, I mean, that's, that's the world's most important, if you will, international sporting event. It's, it's like these are unmatched moments of, of terrorism. So wouldn't they be enough to make the argument that this is the terrorism decade? I would argue that uh, well, the Olympics have been attacked before, uh, but none of those acts of terrorism are as significant or as memorable as 9-11, and 9-11 alone is enough to say that the 90s can't be the terrorism decade. Okay. Austin, real quickly. Um, yeah, just to sort of echo the points of other people, I think that um, the terrorism, I personally think that the terrorism decade is an apt way to describe the 90s. I think it does sort of get close to describing the spirit of the 90s, but I do think that there are more more apt terms um, that we're probably going to get into later. I don't want to jump the gun. Um, but I think terrorism is probably third or fourth on the list of uh, terms that can effectively describe the 90s. So you don't think this is the zeitgeist term, though? This doesn't really say the 90s zeitgeist were... No, not quite. Okay. How about the Clinton dominated decade. How about this one? There's no denying that Bill Clinton was a major political force of the 90s, the most important political force of the American 1990s, arguably. His terms in office spanned most of the decade. He was the first Democratic president to win two successive presidential elections since Franklin Roosevelt. He presided over a relatively calm period of American political life. The economy then in the 90s grew impressively, especially in the second half of the decade, fueled in large measure by the emerging internet economy. He governed as a moderate. He governed as a moderate, not as a heavy partisan on one side or another. And he notably declared in one of his State of the Union addresses, the era of big government is over. He did envision a leaner, more efficient, more effective federal government. And to that end, federal government budgets were balanced in the late 1990s, unthinkable, unheard of today. Welfare reform was proposed and enacted. No denying some of the accomplishments of the Clinton administrations in the 90s. But there are more than a few arguments against the notion that it was the Clinton-dominated decade. His failures, lapses, peccadilloes weigh significantly against this argument. The Rwandan genocide in 1994. Clinton later said that tens of thousands of people their lives could have been saved with prompt military action, which didn't happen. His Defense of Marriage Act, which was federal legislation he claimed not to really wholeheartedly endorse, but he nonetheless signed it. This legislation defined a marriage as a union of man and woman. He signed this in the middle of the night in September of 1996, as the campaign for re-election unfolded in the middle of the night so as not to attract attention to his signing off on this legislation. And yet, nonetheless, he okayed the airing of radio ads in the South that mentioned his support of the Defense of Marriage Act. 
tried to have it both ways on this one in some respects. The crime legislation that was spearheaded and pushed and promoted by Joe Biden, then Senator, was signed and approved during the Clinton administration and has disproportionately targeted minorities, critics say, has led to mass incarceration. And Clinton's lies under oath during during the emerging moments of the Clinton-Lewinsky sex and lies scandal that broke in 1998, his lies under oath about his dalliance with Monica Lewinsky led to his impeachment in 1998. And he later tried to characterized Monica Lewinsky as a stalker, as someone who came on to him. So I believe it's safe to say that the 90s were defined by more than Bill Clinton and his presidency. Was it maybe the Seinfeld decade? Was it the Seinfeld decade? Is that the zeitgeist of the 90s? This was a popular sitcom starring the comedian Jerry Seinfeld. It aired on NBC for much of the decade. And it has been criticized sometimes as, being, as having been a show about nothing. But some critics, some savvy critics, have insisted otherwise that it was a show about everything. That it was a show about everything. That Seinfeld gave the American landscape a satire bath every week, skewering and poking fun at and taking on a range of social norms, conventions of absurdities of life. It was not a show about nothing, these critics say. It was a show about everything. Everything in the American 1990s. And it led to the introduction of distinctive phrases that are with us in some respects to this day. Yada, yada, yada. No soup for you. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Arguments for the uh, the Seinfeld decade. The 90s has the Seinfeld decade. But, of course, there are arguments against that notion. In a way, it was a show about nothing. It was a show about nothing. More than a few episodes were tedious, unfunny, hard to get through. And they didn't tell us, many of these shows didn't tell us much about the 1990s. There was this ageist show called The Old Man. It was loud and it was chaotic really had little to do with the American 1990s. It was also a male-dominated program. Few minority characters made an appearance. One of the few who did was a lawyer, the character Jackie Childs, who was based upon, loosely, based upon Johnny Cochran, who was the lead defense lawyer in the O.J. Simpson trial. And it was usually pretty self-aware when it was making its casual insults. There was an episode called The Beard in which the Elaine character tried to convert a gay man. There was a season, final season episode called The Puerto Rican Day Parade, a dismal episode in which Kramer, the Kramer character, one of Jerry Seinfeld's buddies, stomped on a Puerto Rican flag. So, I think a powerful argument could be made that the Seinfeld decade is not an appropriate way to characterize the 90s zeitgeist. So is it the clueless decade? Is it the clueless decade? This, of course, is a term borrowed from the 1995 sleeper hit, Clueless. And the characterization of clueless decades suggests that America essentially went to sleep after the end of the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. 
that America then took a holiday from history and really failed to confront or recognize the festering problems that were to blow up later in the next decade. Essentially, America kicked the can down the road. The problems were deferred. And one moment at the end of the decade, the Y2K fear, the Y2K scare, really does in a way suggest a cluelessness of Americans at the time in the late 1990s. This, of course, reflected the widespread concern that as the decade ended and the year 2000 began, computers would go haywire because they would fail to recognize the new millennium and think instead it was the year 1900. It didn't happen, but there were many precautions taken, many billions of dollars spent to prevent the specter of Y2K. An example, perhaps, of 90s cluelessness. So what are some of the arguments against the notion that the 90s were the clueless decade? I argue that this is a presentist approach, tending to criticize Americans of the 1990s for not knowing then what we know now about terrorism, about technology, other topics. The fallacy of presentism, I think, lurks in the characterization of the 90s as the clueless decade. Applying contemporary standards, standards of our time, to expectations, to people, to events of the past, expecting them to know what we know and to embrace what we recognize as the standards and values of these days. And while one could argue that indeed U.S. efforts against terrorism abroad were uneven at best, homegrown terrorism, Oklahoma City bombing, the Atlanta Olympics bombing for two cases, the Unabomber is another. Homegrown terrorism received a lot more attention from authorities in the 90s than the specter of international terrorism. And I'm not so sure the U.S. was completely clueless abroad either because it organized a coalition in the early 90s to expel Saddam Hussein and his forces from Kuwait, the neighboring country they had invaded in August of 1990. And this U.S.-led coalition was not only successful, it was broad-based. 39 countries were recruited to this coalition, including Australia, Britain, Egypt, France, Saudi Arabia. It was an effort, an international diplomatic effort that the United States spearheaded and successfully expelled the Iraqis from Kuwait. So I, I would argue that the United States was not entirely clueless about some of the major events and pressures and demands of the time. So if not the clueless decade, maybe it was the best decade ever. The best decade ever. This was a characterization that appeared in a New York Times commentary published in 2015 that made this claim. The 90s were the best decade ever. And it noted that the 90s were a time of prosperity in the United States. After a very sharp early in the decade recession, the American economy grew by an average of 4% a year after 1992 to 1999. 4% a year is pretty strong economic growth. The median household income in the country grew by 10% during the decade. Stocks quadrupled in value. And the commentary noted that peace, prosperity, and order, and American culture were vibrant, healthy, during the 1990s. The best decade ever. Of course, there's some arguments to be raised against this. It's a tempting characterization, tempting to look back, steeped in nostalgia to say the 90s were the best ever, the best decade ever. It is, though, a highly selective, a highly selective characterization, one that overlooks a good deal. The Rwandan genocide is only mentioned parenthetically 
in this commentary in the New York Times. The Crime Bill of 1994, which has been since cited in mass incarceration in the country, was not mentioned at all in the commentary, nor were there nor were the cases of domestic terrorism in New York, Oklahoma City, and Atlanta, all of which, these cases of terrorism, all of which pose obvious challenges to the best ever argument. So, what are we to make of all this? Are the 90s best characterized as the internet decade? The decade of spectacle, the terrorism decade, the Clinton-dominated decade, the Seinfeld decade, the clueless decade, the best decade ever, or something else. Maybe the dramatic decade. What do you think, folks? Go ahead, Natasha. Um, I'm going to kind of personify the 90s a little bit, and I would like to call it the teenage decade. The teenage decade. Yes, and I think this is because it has the lot of, a lot of characteristics of being a teenager. So you can have that kind the of... The decade. Yes. I'm personifying the decade as the teenage decade. Okay. Um, there is that cluelessness, um, maybe the potential to look back with nostalgia, but also a lot of reckless decisions. Um, you can see a lot of that in Clinton. Certainly with spectacle, I would say, fits uh, with drama. And I think also... It's important to remember, like with the internet, there was a lot of opportunity for growth, and a lot of things started in the 90s that would become very important later on, um, which is something that you would do as a person if you were growing. Um, I think it's a jumping off point for a lot of things um, that also has a lot of, it's, it's related to a lot of stuff, but it's also self-contained, and that's why I want to call it the teenage decade. Because you don't live as a teenager forever. You eventually grow out of that, and mature and reach adulthood. So kind of an adolescence, huh? Interesting. Haley, what's a better characterization than any of these? Sorry, I would argue... Or maybe you buy one of these. (laughs) I would argue that the 90s are a distraction decade, like a decade of distraction, kind of this intersection between the decade of spectacle and the clueless decade analyses. I think that because of the way that media covered acts of terrorism, the trial by media frenzy of the 90s generally kind of took away our attention from the deeper-rooted issues that were present in these spectacles, but because of the sheer magnitude of the visual appeal, the drama, you know, the excitement, and even the horror of seeing, you know, coverage of terrorist attacks like OKC and and the Atlanta City bombing, Olympic bombing. I think that because we were so drawn to these spectacles for our attention that we were then distracted from some of the real issues going on, especially in Rwanda, and we tended to overlook a lot of the implications that these spectacles held. And so I think what with your decade again, your title? The distraction decade. Distraction. I think that without what would inevitably be the platform of social media to have public discourse to I guess incite further analyses into these cultural and sociopolitical spectacles that we missed out on having that level of discourse and in-depth thought into why these things were drawing our attention. And I think this was, you know, foreshadowing the now public discourse that we find on social media today whenever an event like the impeachment trials of Trump happen. Like now we have a platform for us to all talk about it together, come to different conclusions, share and exchange information. But because of how new the internet was, we didn't have that yet. And so without having that exchange of information, we were very distracted by what was set in front of us. Got it. Thanks. Austin, then Michael, right behind you. So, are you buying into one of these, or are you going to propose I was, I was going to basically agree with the decade of spectacle. Um, I think, in general, each of these characterizations works on some level or another, but I think, overall, the best way to describe the 90s would be the decade of spectacle. It was the basically the birth of the American fascination with spectacle, with things like the O.J. Simpson trial, with things like the false accusation of Richard Jewell in the Atlantic bombing, 
um, and uh, specifically with you know the terror attacks at Columbine High School and the aftermath of which basically being broadcast to TVs around the um, around the country and um, the you do see spectacles in later decades for instance the terror attacks of 9-11 we we still have mass shootings like to this day Um, but I do think that the 90s were basically the birthplace of that spectacle and the American fascination with spectacle so I think that that is the best way to describe the 90s why why would uh, the decade of the 90s be the origin point for spectacle I think that that's just when we had the 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 internet started to grow and it was base it was giving us more of a platform to to see things from around the country and around the globe previously you'd have to tune into your television and then you know about halfway through the 90s we started getting the advent of the internet and the information started to spread more quickly into more areas of the country um and just all of the different sort of events of the 90s, all of the terror, all of the media spectacle, all of the, um, just all of the, the crazy things that happened that people got to watch live on their TV or see unfold live on the internet, um, just sort of started that obsession with spectacle. Interesting. So what about the counter-argument that I raised that every decade has its spectacle, and since then there's even been more intense live spectacle. Um, We've had two impeachment trials of a sitting president since Clinton's. My counter-argument to that is that while it is true that every every decade has its spectacles, um, we, in the decades preceding the 90s, we would, there was not nearly the sheer amount of spectacle. Um, in decades previously, you know, you'd have like one, maybe two of these mass um, population-wide events that would be viewed by everyone. Whereas in the 90s, you know, people would hear about the uh, World Trade Center bombings and the Oklahoma City bombings and the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, we talked about in class about how every, you know, not every single person, but a lot of people tuned into their televisions on the day that the O.J. verdict was revealed. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It really was a spectacle, a, a, sort of a national vigil to await the verdicts in the O.J. case, case that had just obsessed the country in many ways. That's true. And uh, people were waiting by television sets or radio, not so much on the Internet, for the verdict. And, um, yeah, that's a good point. And it was all captured by, on video, because the video record of the 90s is pretty impressive. And I think that helps support your argument that we can you know, go back and refer to this. We can, we can see it. We can see the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing or the... Uh, World Trade Center attack in 1993. Okay, Mike. Yeah, so I think uh, a good way to describe it would be the precursor uh, decade. Um, and the reason why I say that is I think you could point like a direct line from a bunch of things we talked about this semester, two things that happened in the early 2000s. I think the internet one, we talked about how like a, ma- a lot of major like internet juggernauts were born in the 90s. Amazon, Internet Explorer, you can keep going down the list. Um, I think with terrorism, right, we see these these uh, isolated, separate terrorist attacks, and then that kind of boils up to 9-11. I mean, we have to go for that. I think also could be a contributor to 9-11 and then our war on terror as well. Um, I think with the Clinton um, example, too, you could talk about how the partisan divide that we see in the impeachment trial kind of is the precursor for the um, partisan divide we have in the 2000s and currently now. Um, and then I think, what was the other one? I had another example. Um, forgetting it now. Uh, I think there's a lot more that indicate that there was, like, a lot of events that happened in the 2000, in the 90s, um, like uh, things like school shootings, Columbine was kind of the precursor to the amount of mass shootings we see to this day as well. And I think the only counter argument to that would be that you can argue that any decade before something else could be the precursor decade because that's how time works. But um, I feel like something about the 90s seems like you can make direct lines to things that currently happen a few years, a decade later. So, What other counter arguments might you make if you were going to self-assess that argument, which I grant is... Pretty powerful. Thank you. What counter arguments, though, could you come up with? Arguments. Um, the precursor decade. Maybe it is, as you suggest, every decade is kind of the precursor to the next one. Yeah. Um, and maybe just like, the other ones that we've listed so far that could be better or it could be comparable in terms of being accurate in determining the, the decade. I think the one that I mentioned is kind of like the, the counter argument to my point, which is that you know there's cause and effect always. So yeah. um, I can't really think of another one, but I feel like that won't be a sizable one. 
But I think my argument is still pretty good, though. So, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Duncan, what are you going to endorse one of these, or are you going to come up with a, a zeitgeist decade of your own? I am not sure I could wholeheartedly endorse one of those. I think it, the closest would probably be the decade of spectacle, um, similar to what people have been saying. And it's interesting, I, I think that Seinfeld kind of encapsulates that a little bit. I don't think I would call it the Seinfeld decade, but um, I, I was watching an interview recently with Larry David talking about how he and Jerry like came up with the idea for a show. They uh, met you know, in like a Korean deli um, in New York to talk about, oh, what's the show going to be about? And they were pointing out like the idiosyncrasies about the deli and like Larry David was like, this is what the show is going to be about, just like everyday life. And there were so many people that tuned in, and it kind of showed that there, you can make a spectacle out of anything. Like, humanity itself is, like, worth paying attention to. And I think that kind of, like, paved the way for, you know, at least in, like, media, like in television, um, you see that that sort of thing, there's a lot of different um, creative outlets for a lot of people. There are shows, a lot of shows about nothing now. Um, and... You know, just because, like, you could call it a decade of spectacle because of, like, these um, instances of, like, like OJ or the impeachment trial that are, like, kind of, like, benchmarks for um, the 90s. Uh, but, you know, there's, I think, frequency of spectacle kind of, like, was a precursor, like you said, um, for, you know, I guess the 21st century. Interesting points. You mentioned a moment ago benchmarks. Could you use that term as a way to describe the zeitgeist of the 90s as the benchmark decade? Um, yeah, I, I think in a way, like I, th- I think the benchmark decade um, sort of goes hand in hand with the precursor decade. Um, because with like a spectacle, you know, it's people recognize the um, key events as the dominant forces that like make it could like distinguish it as a decade of spectacle but you know there's lots of other things that um you know are could be considered as like worth paying attention to and like i think seinfeld points that out whether or not you think that's a accurate depiction of life in the 90s or not but um yeah interesting so you do you think the benchmark decade is is okay i mean it's really not something you mentioned, but it's close enough. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I don't think I could characterize it under like one term, but you know, I'm an indecisive person, so that could be part of it. Okay. CJ? Um, I mean, going off of both <clears throat> Duncan's and Michael's points, um, precursor, benchmark, um, I think the 90s can really be defined as the pivotal decade because all of these things that we have talked about kind of laid the groundwork for the end of the millennium, you know, we were going into this this new century, this new time. Y2K, people were scared of it. People had no idea what to expect. Um, the internet was just starting, but it didn't explode until um, the 2000s. And even now, like, we're seeing new facets of the internet, you know, be explored and be discovered. Um, so I, I feel like that is not a great representation of the 90s. Um, you know, we see Amazon be created, but, like, the way in which Amazon has grown to... You know, almost a necessity for some in everyday life. Like, I feel like that is a much better categorization um, in a time closer now than it was then. Um, but I think every aspect of this, like, pivotal nature, like Seinfeld, I think is still regarded as like a fantastic show and one of the best of the best. And I don't think, I mean, I think this can be argued, but I don't think other shows have come close to kind of a, attempting to do what Seinfeld, Seinfeld has done because, you know, I think it was just perfect for that time. Um, and I think that's why it's such a pivotal decade, because I think that was the time in which we were all turning as a society and as a world, um, because, I mean, we had no idea what, you know, homegrown terrorism and worldly terrorism would grow into. You know, we've talked about 9-11, and, like, I think all of these things were small precursors to more dramatic and large-scale things that would come. Um, so... I know we've had like arguments about it being the clueless decade, and I don't know if that is the best representation, but I like this idea of pivotal because all of these things really like laid the groundwork for us to kind of explore 
the unknown world that was coming in the 2000s and such rapid and radical change that I think came from all of these things that we've talked about. When you, when you say pivotal, does that, does that not all come down to the Internet? The Internet entered popular consciousness pretty clearly in the 90s. And the web browsers were one of the factors that, that allowed that to happen. And it's, of course, the Internet was not born fully formed. There was an adolescence. There was a growth period. And it's still growing, as you suggested. But doesn't Pivotal just come down ultimately to the Internet, the introduction of the Internet, or the popular Internet in the 90s? There's a really large part in it. I mean, again, like, I feel like you, you cannot remove the Internet or you know, social media platforms or anything digital from the lives of people now because it's so unbelievably ingrained into everything that we do. Um, so it would be wrong to say that the Internet wasn't included in that pivotal change, but I think it was kind of just like a conglomeration of all of these things together. Um, is what really made kind of that transition into the year 2000 and the years after that is that, um, I mean, yes, the internet, I think, plays a really big part, but, like, in even, like, the early 2000s, even 2005, like, people still were hesitant of the internet and weren't making that switch. I mean, like, you know, we still had newspaper publications and things of that nature. Like, everything wasn't online, even though we had kind of been working with the internet for so long. Um, so I, I think it was it was a slow change, but I think that's why that pivot is so important because that was the decade in which we kind of all about faced to look at the future. Very interesting. Pivotal decade, benchmark decade, if we will, teenage decade, distraction decade, precursor decade. All very good. Let me offer my characterization as a closing word here of our talk today. I argue that the 90s are best understood as the decade of origins. And maybe kind of precursor in a way, but the decade of origins. It's when our now began. It's when our future began. The 90s. It was a time of watersheds, a time of starting points. It was the time of an emergence of a divisive political culture that continues to characterize American life, American political life. It was a time when impeachment was used for the first time in more than a century as a political weapon, as a political weapon, and has been used a couple of times since then. Also, a preoccupation with terrorism can be traced to the 90s. The origins of a culture of fear in the United States is a 90s artifact. It also, the 90s represented, given the rise of the Internet, the beginnings, the early days of a sea change in the news media's business model, especially for newspapers going from an advertising-based revenue model to a subscription-based, a digital subscription-based model that has led to a less temperate, less even-handed, less impartial way of covering the news. Indeed, it has led to the rise of narrative-driven journalism. This didn't happen in the 90s. It didn't happen all at once, but began in the 90s, the sea change in the news media's business model. The trial of the century in 1995 not only was a national obsession, it introduced into popular consciousness the value and the wonder, even, of forensic DNA. DNA evidence was introduced at the OJ trial, but it had been poorly collected, poorly processed, poorly evaluated by authorities in Los Angeles, and it was not the way in which O.J. Simpson was convicted. In fact, he was not convicted at the trial in 1995. But forensic DNA became a popular element in American life. It signaled or anticipated the spinoff 
of all kinds of television shows based on the use of forensic DNA evidence. The CSI franchise, crime scene investigation, of which there have been many versions, can be traced to this interest and preoccupation, if you will, with DNA, forensic DNA. And also, it was the rise of the internet. The popular internet got going in the 90s. Again, it wasn't fully formed at birth, but it clearly contributes to the decade of origins. The decade of origins. We're almost out of time, folks. And as we wrap up, Allow me to do so on a personal note. This is not only the last lecture of the semester. It's the last lecture of my academic career. After 26 years on the American University faculty and 20-plus years in the news business as a journalist before then, I will be wrapping up by the end of December, by the end of the academic year. I'll go on sabbatical leave in fall semester 2023 and then formally be retired at the end of the year. It's been a good run for me at American University, 26 years on the faculty. I've taught 20 different courses, including the American 1990s. I've written seven solo authored books. I've won awards such as the Faculty Member of the Year Award given by the AU Student Government. So it has been a good run, but it's time. And you've got to recognize when that time comes. It's arrived for me. And I want to thank you very much for your contributions to this class this semester. Our discussion today, I think, indicates the vibrant nature of our collaboration and our discussions together. So, folks, with that, we stand adjourned. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>